Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of Code Commerce 2017 in New York City. If you like it, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. If I had a bet on one guest uh, upping me on the dress, it would, be, it would be Andy. So looking good. Someone said no whites after Labor Day. Is that a thing? I don't know. I'm not a... You, you was, can, that, was it just Labor Day or...? I think it was Labor Day. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Well, um, so Andy Dunn, Walmart employee. <laughs> not, I mean, I don't know. Would you have guessed that a year ago? I just asked for a vest. <laughs> and I just asked to work for a store, uh, in a store for a week. <laughs> so it's funny. I called my mom in the middle of the deal. And there's a few different options we were considering. And I said, you know, Walmart is one of our options. And we had a conversation about it. And she goes, you know, I go to Walmart every week. So they live in Lincoln Park in Chicago. And it's a funny thing. It took me back like 20 years when I was growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. You know, my mom is a refugee, born in a refugee camp on the way from Rawalpindi, Pakistan to New Delhi, India at the time of the partition. Dad is a US history teacher, you know, born and raised in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Illinois. And so growing up, I used to go to Walmart all the time. You know, we used to get our photos developed at Walmart. We used to pick up prescriptions at Walmart. We used to buy clothes at Walmart. And then I think what happened is, over time, I got sucked into a life where you start living on the coasts. You know, business school on the West Coast, living in New York. And perhaps you start to lose touch a little bit with the fact that Walmart is an institution for the vast majority of Americans. So it kind of brought me back. And it got me thinking about the future of American retail and something that, in fact, I never would have guessed we would do started to make a lot of sense. And so when you still think, when, when you think at a very high level of Bonobo's brand and what you've built over the last 10 years there and the Walmart brand, mm -hmm. they speak to different things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Mark Laurie, who ran Jet.com and now runs the e-commerce business in the U.S. for Walmart. Yeah. Um, was, is, is he the reason you were there? Would that deal have been done without him? What was, how'd you wrap your mind around the sort of the brand, yeah. the brand, uh, whatever this is, that thing? It's a key piece of it, right? Because if you think about it, in a world where we move increasingly towards e-commerce distribution, as the share shift happens, you become more agnostic to geography, right? Because in a brick and mortar world, it's all about what's in the vicinity of the store. As you move into e-com, those geographical barriers come down. And so when you think about a brand like Walmart that historically has been more non-urban than urban, certainly if you're talking about the top 10, you know, top 10 cities in the US, which have a huge chunk of the population, if you want to address that with a brand, you need that brand to resonate to consumers in those places. Think about New York City, think about San Francisco, think about Boston, LA, so on and so forth. And I think the genius of the acquisition of Jet by Walmart is the recognition that they, in fact, need an additional brand to address those urban, you know, millennial, up-and-coming consumers. And so it really was a function of my mind meld with Mark about the future of retail that the Bonobos piece started to fit into the puzzle. And the idea of, wait a second, third-party marketplaces for e-commerce tend to have challenges with profits, and that by adding digital brands, you start to transform the equation a little bit on how the economics work. So when I, when, 
I first heard about the deal and wrote about it before you guys were ready to announce nice it. Sorry. Um, I said to myself, I said, okay, so I guess this could make sense, but I'm not sure what Bonobos gets, what, what they're looking for in this company. Because if they're not going to sell in Walmart stores, which I didn't think you would, then the, the distribution piece doesn't seem like it's there. So maybe you can answer that question for me. What do, what do you get? What do you get from? I mean, resources at a high level, fine. Yeah. But is it, you know, Jet's still a, a no small growing platform. Yeah, there's really a couple of things. And originally, I thought one was more important than the other, and now I'm kind of flip flopping. So speed of shipping and the ability to get their product to the consumer is becoming increasingly more and more important. And I think that you know, Mark has made some announcements about the ways in which they're leveraging the Walmart footprint to try to get product to the consumer more quickly. Now, that isn't immediately relevant to us because we don't distribute our product in Walmart stores. But the ability to leverage that massive supply chain, which if you think about the brick and mortar component to it for Walmart, really is the most largely built out infrastructure for retail in the United States. And over time, to continue to innovate that on speed to the consumer becomes huge. And when you think about our retail strategy, where we're, we're really offering a showroom experience, you come in, you try it on, you get fitted, but you don't actually get the product in the guide shop, speed of delivery and returns is one. Two is just access to a much wider base of consumers, right? So if you pull a market like New York and say, in our target market, what percentage of guys know about Bonobos, what would be your guess? What's our brand awareness in New York City? 15. It's not, it's not so far off. Okay. So unaided brand awareness in markets like New York might be around 15. Take a smaller market, take a, um, you know, let's just pull it out of a hat, like a Nashville, right? Or even a larger city somewhere else in the country, like Dallas, you're talking sub six, sub 5%. So Bonobos is actually a reasonably sizable brand that most people don't know about. We wouldn't know that because we know, right? It's the classic question, you know, raise your hand if you use Android, right? And the majority of America is on Android. So there's this lovely heuristic that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Fersky talked a lot about, which is the availability bias heuristic. I feel like everyone knows Bonobos because I want it to be true, but we have a huge market to go get. And obviously, you know, the Jet platform therefore becomes pretty interesting. Got it. How much um, of you agreeing to this deal was having the right role for yourself in, in this landing spot? Well, here's what I'd say about selling a company. You've got four stakeholders. You've got your employees, who I always feel like are stakeholder number one because they live and breathe that brand or that company every day. You've got your customers, who if you have happy employees, you tend to have happy customers. You need to keep them in mind because that's your lifeblood, that's how you make money, and it's the reason why you exist. And then you've got shareholders that most business school classes will teach you are first. I would argue that whether they're first or last, if you have happy employees and happy customers, you're very likely to have happy shareholders. And then the fourth person is yourself. And the paradox of being a human being is that we're the center of our own universes. Um, my wife frequently confirms that that's actually the case for me. Uh, I got married in May. And I keep trying to convince her that, that's, that she actually is first and she doesn't agree, um, which is frustrating. Um, 
but that's probably because I just got married and I've got some work to do. So I had to this could be a whole different type of conversation. We will, we'll come back around. Okay. okay. We'll come back around. Okay. Sorry, I just got back from honeymoon, so re-entering professional society. Um, <laughs> you got to put yourself last. And I'll be very honest with you, we had three really, really exciting options that we had honed, up, honed into. Which are? Which were? One option was to stay independent and take a small internal round to be able to accelerate guide shop expansion from Some, one of... One, small being how big? 15. Okay. Right? So 15 million bucks would have enabled us to continue to open our stores. We had, a, we had a board member who said, we'll take it. So that was kind of the stay independent path, but where no one on the capital stack would have gotten liquidity. We then had an option. And, it's been, and it had been nine, 10 years, right? It'd been 10 years, actually. So yeah. we just did our 10-year anniversary party you know, a month ago, six weeks ago. Option two was to move the private equity route, right? And so what you find as you raise capital in a business like ours is at the beginning, you raise it from angels, then maybe seed investors, then series A, then kind of series B, C, D, you might find different growth equity or strategics to put in equity. But at some point, you wake up and you need full stop liquidity. And there's three ways to do that. A company buys you, a private equity firm buys you, or you go public. And so we had a nice option in the private equity sector. But those folks are control-oriented, yep. which is problematic for, for someone like myself that has control issues, which is another conversation. And they want to elbow you out of, out of running They the want you to report to them, which is a tough thing to swallow after a decade of building something. And when you only need 15, it's like, well, why would we give up control? And so then we had a couple of strategic conversations. And the one that I thought was probably lowest probability was Walmart Jet. In fact, I hadn't even thought about it, you know, nor, frankly, had our, had our bankers. I got a phone call on an airplane one day, and it was from a friend who works at Jet, who's a business school classmate of mine, and he, wanted, he had a reference that he wanted to do, and I did the reference. And then he said, how are you doing? And I had this sliding doors moment where I could have lied, which is what most people do in social settings, um, and say, you know, I'm great, which is usually never true of anyone at any point in time. But yet, it's like the de facto answer. Don't ask me right now. I'm not going to okay. ask you. Okay. So what I said was, I said, I'm, things are miserable right now. <laughs> and he goes, why? And I said, you know, we're in the middle of something pretty wild at work. And he was a colleague of mine who I trusted. And he, he, he was at Jet, and he said, would you ever talk to us? And I said, about what? And he said, about doing something with us. And I thought, wait a second. Jet? Walmart? Wait, I know Mark. I love Mark. I was like, yeah, let's have the conversation. And it literally was the last conversation we were going to have. We were inches from picking between one of the other two paths. Which were? Oh. Which were the ones I described. I was trying to get the other potential acquirers out of you. There was, you know, there were some people around this. We, we were fortunate in that we had built an asset that had gotten to scale. Right? We had figured out how you get to scale, how do you turn the corner on the P&L, things that we think are, there are a lot of folks out there that are going to figure out it's hard to do. Scale being, in your case, north of $100 million in revenue. Certainly north, but also, you know, this operating profit thing was starting to happen for us. Right? Like, we'd kind of gotten to that break-even point. I'm not going to say we were making a lot of money. We had, you know, some kind of pops here and there, some quarters and some months, but we had definitely turned the corner where we were no longer an EBITDA negative business, right? So a break-even company. And it was the last meeting I took. And I went over to Hoboken and met with Mark. And I've told the story a few times, so forgive me if you've heard it before, but he was wearing a Vineyard Vine shirt. 
And I was like, that's just not cool. Like, I didn't, I didn't show up in an Amazon t-shirt. Like, can we, can we keep this civil? But Big Bezos head on it. Yeah, but I, I just adore Mark Laurie. You know, I've, I've met Mark only probably six or seven times in the last seven years. He's always struck me as someone with courage, with candor. He's contrarian. He's hugely ambitious. I admire him. I never thought he cared about what I did. I mean, I thought he was a nice mentor and with some common friends, but I never thought he cared about brands. I thought he cared about large platforms, right? Like diapersandsoap.com, wag.com and his previous company, likejet.com, which is obviously hugely ambitious. And we sat down and he said, what are you thinking about doing? And I said, well, I think we've got a path where we'll stay independent and go public. He's like, well, what would it take to be interested in what we're doing? And I said, the only thing that would get me excited is if you had a bigger vision that we could build out you know, a collection. At some stage, a collection of digital brands. And he goes, that's what I want to do. He, and Mark is really good at math. And he's like, contribution margin is this much higher and blah, blah, blah. And by the way, it's proprietary for the consumer. Like, he got excited and I reciprocally got excited and we've long respected each other and here we are. Here we are. So, a lot to unpack there. We'll keep the marriage stuff off till the end. Yeah. Um, Professional or personal marriage? Uh, okay. Yeah, both. Never. Okay. okay. So, um, so on the partnership, your new role, I think this started with me asking about your new role and how important that was. Yeah. So you're running a group that is now consists of two brands, That's Bon right. Bonobos and ModCloth, which right. was acquired by Walmart a few months before Correct. Bonobos. And I had long heard around sort of the New York e-commerce you know, bubble that you had this vision for a long time. You'd love to get a bunch of these brands together under yeah. one roof. Yeah. What are the efficiencies? Why does it make sense to put a bunch of these, you know, digital native, but with physical retail footprint brands together? I've tried to do it before at Bonobos and I've screwed it up a couple times. The first thing that we did was we tried to actually think about creating a technology stack so good that it would be worthy of a multi-brand content play on top of it. And my genius idea was, let's go actually build that in the most competitive engineering environment in the world, which is Silicon Valley. But the thinking was, you know, this was back in 2011, that the New York tech ecosystem wasn't really ready to build a big engineering team behind an e-commerce stack. And it turns out that was probably not true, and it's certainly not true now, right? We've got a big engineering ecosystem here at this point. Relative to where we were six years ago, it's like 10x. The second problem with it is that on the West Coast, people have a lot of options, and it's more expensive. And probably most importantly, that the forces of tribalism and human nature are probably the only, other, the only thing that trumps or rivals the forces of self-interest in human nature. So we ended up with this East Coast, West Coast conflict between the brand on the East Coast and the tech stack on the West Coast. So we opened that, we staffed it up, we spun it up, and then we realized it wasn't going to work, and we spun it back down. And I remember having a board meeting. Did that like, have a name? What was that? Um, it didn't have a name, actually, okay. that I recall. It was, it was just sort of this idea that we'd build the tech stack out there. Um, but people out there really thought it was a tech company. And in New York, they're like, we're pretty sure this is a menswear, you know, an experience-driven menswear company. Like, last I checked, we sell pants and shirts. So what are those folks over there doing again? And why do they make so much money? So that was problematic. And then the second issue was we started to actually try to make new brands at Bonobos. We made a women's brand called Air. AYR.com, actually really great product focused on denim, denim right. star. And we made a golf brand called Made, M-A-I-D-E, which comes from a Gaelic word. And then we realized that on our balance sheet, 
it's hard to build a new technology office and build multiple brands. So I had a summer sabbatical in 2015, um, took a few weeks off, and I came back, and from the vantage point, I was you, a big... You gave up the CEO role, correct? Well, it's a separate detail. Okay. Um, and came back from that and realized, you know what? We've got to be really focused on just one brand at our company and getting that brand right. So we collapsed the Made Golf brand back into Bonobos. We said, hey, that's the same customer. Now we have Bonobos Golf. And we took Air, which is a promising little brand, and we spun it out and made it an independent company. Then we took the component of the tech stack that was personalization driven, we spun that out, and we invited whatever engineers wanted to to come back to New York. So the funny part of this is we really got religion around focus, knowing that our balance sheet at Bonobos Inc. was too small to take on a multi-brand dream. Yeah, I was going to ask what, what proved that to you, and it was just burn, cash burn? Just month? cash burn. And one of my board members said it best, he's the chairman of JetBlue, Joel Peterson, said the only way you can launch new stuff is out of cash flow. If you want to launch new stuff, do it out of cash flow. But until you're generating cash flow, doing something new is irresponsible to what you've got. Because you need to distort capital to what's new. Uh, I don't have kids yet, but I imagine that this is the way you think about a new baby. right? If you've got a five-year-old and a new baby, the reason why your five-year-old's upset is you've got to forgive the term, distort resources towards the new baby. Yes, in every, in every way possible. Right. Yes. But in business, this works poorly because your core asset is still trying to get to scale. And then along comes Walmart. And Walmart's got, you know, a decent balance sheet. I've heard that. <laughs> so what do you get from each other? What, what is each brand? Like, how does each brand feed off each other? I'm assuming there are going to be other brands. We'll get into that in a bit, and I'll poke you on that. Um, like... What makes sense between Bonobos and Mockup? One's geared toward women, one's men. Is there anything on the brand side, or is it more back-end stuff? Yeah. So I now have invested in some 15-plus digitally native vertical brands, the nerdy term that maybe someone can come up with a better term for. And what I've discovered is that in our own, I don't know if is this a movie, but like in our own private Idahos, is that a movie? Okay. We're all in our own private Idaho okay. doing the same thing, figuring out how do I build a lean tech stack? How do I think about launching the brand across the different ways you acquire customers? How do I hire the right talent? Because you've got like a talent challenge where you've got everyone from physical product designers to data scientists. Everyone's doing this in their own world. And sure, I've become friends with the founders of many of these companies, and I've invested in a bunch. But there's no you know, digitally native vertical brand commerce conference. And there certainly isn't the kind of trust and knowledge sharing and cross-pollination of talent that comes when you have the same owner. So the truth is, is I don't know the answer to your question because my job is so new. But I'm convinced that cross-pollination of learnings and talent and leverage, particularly in the back end of the stack, things like technology and fulfillment customer service, knowledge around customer acquisition, and perhaps leveraging vendors, will be just the beginning of what ultimately is most valuable, which is people understanding how to bring these brands to market and make them successful, which is virtually the same challenge across all the digitally native vertical brands. Right. This is, it's the same thing, which is how do you get this physical product bundled with customer service that creates an experience to matter to the consumer enough that you can attract new consumers and drive a lot of lifetime value and excitement out of your repeat users. And so when you think about you know, your role now and also expanding your purview, 
do you think you'll go, is, is acquisition the route that you'll add brands, or do you feel you have the capabilities in-house of building new brands from scratch? We're open-minded. You know, my mandate right now from Walmart is, let's win with what we've got, right? Let's win with what we've got. Walmart has been acquisitive, you know, since Jet, right? You know, Hay Needle has been acquired. Moose Jaw has been acquired. What was called Shoebuy has been acquired. That's now Shoes.com. ModCloth was acquired during the Bonobos transaction being live. Now Bonobos has been acquired. As you might imagine, we've got to win. Now, I only have purview over Bonobos and ModCloth. My job is to make sure that those two assets are doing incredibly well when there's some confidence that they are, which I imagine you know, you've got some quarter, you know, a few quarters to build credibility, we'll then think about build versus buy on other things. Got it. So win with what you have essentially means stay put for now. Comes back to that message around focus, right? Like get what you've got right, earn the right to do more. Got it. Um, one thing, when I was asking about learnings between the two, one thing you didn't touch on was um, what physical retail looks like for a brand like yours. So you have 30-something plus yeah, I think we show, just, showrooms? Yep, just cracked 40 guide shops. If you haven't been to one of our stores, please go shopping soon. Um, there are 1,200-square-foot e-commerce showrooms. Come in, get fitted, get great one-to-one -one service. We offer a lot more sizing and fit options because it's a showroom model. And then we ship it to you based on a transaction. I would say if we had gone the route of IPO, there would have been a lot of pressure to grow that really quickly. Because what the public markets understand when it comes to four-wall vertical retail is store expansion. Look at Lululemon's IPO. Look at Michael Kors's IPO. Look at the history of any brick-and-mortar companies. The growth comes from new stores. It's same store sales yeah. and new stores. We feel very excited in this new world that we don't have the pressure to grow that super, super quickly to please a public market story to get the company public. Will we continue to expand our guide shop footprint? Yes. Will we be more methodical about it? Definitely. Were you opening stores for a good business reason, or was it, were you trying to sort of fit the narrative of what you thought the public markets wanted to say? Well, here's what we learned. We wanted to build a great brand, and we wanted to be able to attract customers into that brand. What we found is that incremental stores and multi-door markets, we were going too fast. Whereas a new door in a market that doesn't have a guide shop works better. Once we've gotten to this level of 40, you know, in New York City, we've got 35 Crosby Street, we've got 52nd in Madison, we've got Brookfield Place, we've got 17th Street and 5th Avenue in the lower Flatiron, and then we've got in our headquarters at 25th Street and 6th Avenue. We just opened Court Street in Brooklyn. So should we go open another six stores in, the, in, in this area in the next two years? Absolutely not. Is it exciting to look at geographies like Portland and Denver and Nashville? Um, and open new doors there, that's a little bit more exciting right now because there are markets such as New York, Chicago, and D.C. were saturated relative to where we should be. So that's kind of the learning, and that enables us to say, rather than open 25 new doors next year, which would have gotten the public market super excited about our IPO, maybe next year will be half of that. Would the public markets today be excited about opening up a bunch of new physical retail? I don't think the public markets are very excited about retail right now. No, I've heard that. So maybe you made a good decision. Well, it was part of it. Yeah. It was part of it. It's a weird time to be a retail company, and 
at the end of the day, there will be some standalone enterprises that do well. You know, your last interviewee up here was Nike. I don't worry too much for Nike. But if you're not Nike or Under Armour or one of these really big vertical brands or Chanel or, you know, tens of billions of dollars or wherever these guys live, it's hard. It's hard to be kind of a couple billion dollar retail brand right now. And it, it definitely factored into the calculus of taking the path of belonging to a company that's just got a formidable, formidable staying power. So what, you, market. what advice, so you raised, sorry, back up. You raised, um, I think over $120 million. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, for a company that ended up with annual revenue or somewhere around that same amount, give or take. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs in this space when it comes to venture capital and how to think about, do I need it? How much do I need it? Yeah. Are these my friends? Maybe not. Look, here's what I would say. You know, pioneers get the arrows, settlers get the gold. I think if you look at the big digitally native vertical brand players, what do they all have in common? You know, I think um, John Foley from Peloton had a, had a sheet up here. He had Warby, he had Casper, he had Bonobos, I think he had Harry's. He had a bunch of reasonably well-known, and, and at least in our little corner of the world, digitally native vertical brands. What do they all have in common? If I'm not mistaken, they've all raised at least 100 million of capital. Raising 100 million of capital means you need to return, you know, hopefully at least 300 to feel good about yourself. Um, my advice would be raise 20 to 50, low to high. And that's if you think you've got something big. And if you're gonna raise 100 to 200, um, you know, be concerned. It's not easy to sell your company. It's not easy to get liquidity. I think if you look at the whole e-commerce landscape, and you say, how many companies have sold or gotten liquid for north of their last post-money valuation? It's not the longest list in the world. Yep. So when you, well, we have time for a couple of questions in a minute. Um, when you went to your board uh, with that 300 or 310 number, or you all got that number together, what was the initial reaction to that? People were fired up. Fired up. So when I think that's... So they're not, they're not looking at as good, not great outcome? Like what was the... What well, look, I mean, if you put money in our first round and you made 16 times your money, you're happy. If you're a Series A investor, you know, six times your money. The people who put in the very last round still make money, but, you know, it's, they weren't like jumping off the, off the, into the pool, right? But we made our last investors money, which I think, you know, I would say to any entrepreneur out there, if you can do that, you'll... you'll you'll feel good because you made everybody money. And by definition, that means you made your management team and your employees money too. And it's, you know, I'd say after a decade of doing this, it's a huge relief to be able to say that. If we have any questions, uh, there are two mics right here. I realized uh, the name Amazon hasn't come up, so let's do that. Um, the ex Walmart exclu Jet exclusive brands, is this, I'm assuming you know, that part of this or a big part of this is looking at what we can do that Amazon can't or isn't doing? Look, we're just fortunate to be on the stage. You know, the, the this, day that... The stage? Yeah. Okay. To be here with you. Cool. Um, the day that the Bonobos deal was announced, you know, the Whole Foods deal was announced too. Yeah. And... What was that like? It was awesome because all of a sudden... Really? I mean, for me personally, okay. I was like... We're in the same conversation as Whole Foods. It's a, what was it, a $13 billion company. 
And Neil Irwin from the New York Times wrote an article about, hey, what does today mean for the future of retail? And I thought it was a brilliant article, um, the way he analyzed what was happening between the two companies. So we're just lucky to be here, and we, we hope to prove that we, we earned our spot in the conversation. Okay. Oh, we have a bunch of questions. Okay, please tell us who you are. Hi, Christian Hassold, Head of Strategy at Channel Advisor. Hi. Uh, I was the CEO of Hublogix. They bought my company three months ago. <laughs> I, I know something about capital raise. Congratulations. Challenges. Uh, I was, AYR, is at, AIR was actually a customer, and I was, so I was going to ask you about why you spun off AIR, but since that's really answered, just thinking about like scaling up a brand, right? So Shopify has made it incredibly easy for a brand to go to market, and Amazon Web Services has all this cool stuff. So just thinking about like what is really hard and why is this still so difficult? Is it fulfillment? Like what's the one thing you'd be like, if I could go back and blow something yeah. else up, what would it be? I'd just be curious your thoughts. So I don't know if you've ever read uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. All the time. Raise your hand if you've read that book. All right, for everyone who didn't put it up, it's worth a look. He's got this great article about how nobody cares. And he basically talks about how nobody cares about you or your company or its success or failure. And he ends it with, even your mama don't care, which in my case, I don't think is true. I think my mom does care. <laughs> but the hardest part about building a brand is that nobody cares that you're building a brand, right? You sit there in your pitch and you're like, I'm doing you know, the Warby Parker for speakers. And here's why it's so exciting. And then you start trying to sell speakers, and it turns out people like their speakers. So you need, a, you need a reason for being for why a digital brand is better. And I think the, the biggest problem that I see is people who make digital brands, but where the physical product in the bundle of, with the experience is going to be no better than what's already on the market. And I think that's why we see so much activity in categories like razors and mattresses. Because people hate those incumbent experiences. They feel like they're overpriced. The shopping experience it isn't easy. The only reason Bonobos has been successful is we actually have a differentiated fit offering, and we bundle that with frictionless shopping. Right? Like we offer between two to four times as many variants in chino shirts and jackets as anyone else out there. If we were just making the exact same product and selling online, I would argue we would have gotten stock at $20 million with a lot of paid in capital because we would have kind of faked it. So I don't actually think this is a question of tools. You know, Shopify, Amazon Web Services, as you point out, the infrastructure is so much better. The challenge is, is why is anyone going to really give a crap? I now say give a crap. You, you can curse. Give a crap about your brand. Okay. Give a shit about your brand. Yeah. I can curse here. I guess it's New York. So that, that would kind of be my answer is, like, why should anyone care? All right. Hi, I'm John, founder Hi, John. of Hillfland. Um, you talk about how you've been able to leverage a lot of the infrastructure and customer service and logistics of Walmart in conjunction with um, all these new digitally native brands that you and Mark Laurie now manage. I'm curious, do you see also, given Walmart's massive retail footprint, an opportunity to meld these new brands um, with a next generation brick and mortar experience? Particularly given Walmart has these massive, massive stores that our, yeah. our parents shop at. But in my view, a lot of the real estate you know, could be chopped up and totally converted. For the right brands, I do. But those brands have to be at a price point that kind of marries to that consumer. 
So I don't see it for bonobos. I perhaps see it for brands down the road. Thanks. Hi, I'm Sarah Karam from Google. Hi, Big fan of your e-commerce is a bear article. I still share it with a lot of friends who are starting companies. It's a little depressing, companies. I know. It is. I share it with, with startup founders, and then that's a test. If they, if they don't find their company anymore, then they're, they didn't really care. Yeah. Um, For those who haven't read it, Andy wrote a Medium post called e-commerce is a bear, which is really depressing very if you're good. trying to build yeah. an e-commerce business for free. <laughs> it is depressing. Um, so, I mean, this is something that we talk about a lot. Um, you know, I work with developers on Android. and. Uh, you know, I think one challenge a lot of retailers have, and you talked about this, that you know most retailers are not technology companies, no matter what they say. You know, right. they're selling they're selling products. But what Amazon has that a lot of retailers don't have is a is a culture and a and a kind of very software driven mindset of iterate, iterate, you know, break, break things, fail fast, keep keep going, that's right. uh, be ambitious, and that's that's hard to build, right? That's and right. do you think Walmart? You know, Walmart is obviously. Uh, best position to really compete effectively with Amazon in the next five, ten years. Do you think that culture needs to needs to become more embedded at Walmart to succeed, or do you yeah. think that's it, it doesn't really matter and that it's just about the products and the features and the customer service? I used to joke that Bonobos might be the only company in the world where there's a designer from J. Crew down the hallway from a data scientist from Netflix, you know, around the corner from a marketer from Trulia. Right? The, the width of the stack of the kinds of capabilities you need in retail now, it used to be really merchandising, you know, product is king, and then maybe stores was a subsidiary but was important. Well, now you need technology DNA, and Amazon started with that. But when you look at where the world's going, it's really, I hate to use the term, but it is going to the consumers everywhere, and it does become about Omni, and if it's about Omni, then you need to be good at merchandising and physical brick and mortar and have technology DNA to say nothing about digital marketing, customer acquisition, and building a great culture. So what you've, you've hit on it exactly correctly, which is one of the reasons I think why Walmart bought Jet and Mark Laurie and the team is to start to build amazing technology DNA. And you see it with the launch of initiatives like store number eight, which is our incubator. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, sure. One more. Jack Lowinger, CEO of Cartonomy here in New York. Um, hi. hi, how are you? Um, your retail store is your retail footprint. I want to share anecdotally that uh, my father became a customer and he never would have gone to the Bonobos website. And I'm wondering if you think of it uh, primarily as a um, customer acquisition tool for the website, having the physical store locations, yeah. or even almost like a physical advertisement for the website, or if you expect that there will be a new customer base that frequents the stores to the exclusion of shopping on your site? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the answer is both. So we look at the foot traffic for each store, the conversion rate of that foot traffic, and that really helps us understand what's the walk-by potential of the store, and that's why we pick locations. We started with second and third story stores, and then we realized that men are so lazy, in fact, that a flight of stairs <laughs> is a deterrent whereby they will never go there, ever. <laughs> Um, unless they're walking up to a sporting event or something like that. Um, so then we said, let's try ground level, and we tried a store in my hometown, you know, near, around the corner from where my parents live, in Armitage Street in Lincoln Park. Raise your hand if you know where Armitage Street is. So Armitage, the, f the future of retail is going down on Armitage. You've got a Bonobos, a Warby Parker, a Mar Marine Lair, Interior Define, a Monica and Andy around the corner, a Thai bar. Armitage is like an experiment in the future of retail between Halstead and Sheffield, and there's great foot traffic there. People on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, hang out. You got strollers. You got people walking up and down. So it is about discovery. 
but it's also about consumers in those markets who already know Bonobos coming there to try a new product to touch and feel. So depending on the market, we see between one-third, two-thirds, and two-thirds, one-thirds between new and repeat business. Thanks for your question. I think we are out of time, okay. Andy. Thanks, Thank Jason. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay, and be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, in which Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts.